everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, let's talk about sex, ladies, cetacean sex at sea, the mating rituals and competitions you might see. Let's talk about sex, cetacean sex. Yeah! Yay! <laughs> Just like to say that that was a surprise too, Sarah and I. It just said Indeed. song in the notes, so I knew it was gonna be something. That was amazing. That's what it was. Uh, amazing. I feel like you should record a like a super good version of that song, and we'll like put it on the Patreon one day. One day I'll write all the lyrics. One day. I do love to do. Okay. We are also going to have a fun flipper fact voted on by the winner of our latest Patreon poll. Woo-hoo. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. So, as evidenced by our song, today we are discussing the sexy times of cetaceans. Uh, This is an appropriate moment to give a disclaimer to all of our younger listeners. This is going to be a very biological approach to cetacean sex, but it will also be an episode all about sex um, in the cetacean world. So, that's what our discussion is about how they do it how that works underwater all of the biology involved our fun flipper fact is about the byproduct of sex as voted on by our uh, patreons uh, subscribers so that was very exciting and um you know we have some safe sustainable sex tips at the end of the show for the humans that are listening instead of the cetaceans. So if that, regardless of your age, listener, if that's not your interest in the cetacean world, then this is a hundred percent not the episode for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we invite you to come back to our next episode or go back to the one that we just released, our uh, mailbag episode, because that's about everything. And uh, yeah, you can listen fun. to that and come back next month when uh, we'll be talking about other stuff and uh, probably not cetacean sex. I don't know. Now that I've dug this deep into this subject, I think this is going to come out frequently for me because it was fascinating. Um, I also want to say that uh, obviously we are choosing to talk about cetacean sex. So we're pretty sex positive, sex forward thinking people. Uh, It turns out uh, cetaceans are the same. So, you know, free love, everybody enjoy and we're going to have a good time today. Um, so we're going to start off with the actual biology part, which is the same for all cetaceans. Um, and it is how to tell a male and a female cetacean apart, which is harder than it can be to tell other animal species, uh, genders apart, sexes. Um, so the cetacean reproductive organs are loaded, located inside the body for both sexes. Males ha- have a fibroelastic penis, which is also known as a dork. So if you want to think about that, the next time you call somebody a dork. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a teacher of mine calling me out on that in grade seven. I called somebody a dork and my science teacher, Mr. Urix, was like, when you call someone a dork, you are calling them a whale's penis. And I was like, well, now I'm going to call everybody. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Also, that's not very sex positive of you, seventh grade teacher, because there's nothing wrong with calling somebody a whale penis. It's a very good insult. (laughs) Just like in Anchorman when he talks about a whale's vagina. Anyway, uh, speaking of vaginas and as they relate to cetaceans. So uh, kind of a common thread you're going to hear in our discussion today is that we know a lot more about the male genitalia 
in the cetacean world than we do about the female genitalia and how that all works. And you could chalk that up to the fact that uh, when it is time to mate, or sometimes even when it's not, but just when they're feeling frisky, you can see visibly a male cetacean's genitals because they do come out of that genital slit that Lindsay was just mentioning. Um, But that, if you dig down into it, is not actually true. As with many things, it's the patriarchy. I was just going to (laughs) say... Um, and just the fact that it has been notoriously hard for, um, it's probably part of it. It is harder to study a female cetaceans, uh, genetics. And when it comes to their sort of biology in the, in what, what did I just call it? The vaginal area, genital slit. That's what I was looking for in their genital area. Um, but also it's about size and males and when wanting to measure, and so there has just not been a lot of research that has been funded over the years, especially more recently, like in the last 100 to 50 years of this kind of like current scientific method on the cetacean females genetics or gen- I keep saying that on the cetacean females genitals. However, however, I have a new best friend in the researcher world, even though we've never met. She doesn't know that we're best friends yet. Um, But she's like my new idol and hero in the cetacean research world. Her name is Dara Orbach, and hopefully I am saying that properly. She's a marine mammologist at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. And I will include in the show notes, I, she's, I'm obviously like super in love with her now because in the show notes, I think there are four, maybe five different articles that I found featuring her just over the last four to five years uh, because her whole deal is studying female cetacean genitals, specifically looking at their vaginal structures. And it's so cool. And she's so happy to talk about her work and she loves what she's doing and most of these things I'll include in the show notes which is like interviews with her and science magazine for example um and the article is everything you always wanted to know about dolphin sex and were afraid to ask and I it's like my new life goal to get her on this this show guys and have her talk to us about <laughs> that one and the jokes. and the getting to know your whale vaginas and seven steps really sound like they've they're like ripped from Cosmo yeah <laughs> Um, What I did learn that's important for our listeners to know is that I had, again, similar to in our mailbag episode and all of the great questions we got from you um, that you wanted us to look into and so many of them that we had never thought to ask ourselves, I had never thought about whether or not whales have clitorises or not. Had you guys ever thought about that? No, and now I'm just thinking about if I've ever thought about what the plural of clitoris is. Ah. Yeah. But I think you yeah. said it right. Who knows? Clitoris. It might be clitori. Please correct me. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those ones that could be either. Could be either. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've definitely never thought about it. It wouldn't surprise me uh, for dolphins because I know that they are a fan of sex. Um, but like, you know, you hear that kind of thing like dolphins have sex for pleasure. And you just like never really think about it anymore. Yeah. Like whether or not that what that means and what kind of pleasure they're getting like i'm not surprised like i i don't i think i would have been surprised to hear that they didn't but i'd never considered that they did you know like i just sort of assumed that all mammals are kind of vaguely yeah relatively well, now similar. that makes me think about like, what other mammals have 
everyone, it turns out. Yeah. Every Even female like mammal has like a clitoris. Like an echidna? Yeah. Because that's weird. Maybe well, not echidnas. It, from everything that I could find, which again, just look at my search history one day. <laughs> um, it appears that every female mammal specifically. So, I mean, echidnas are a mammal, but they're all weird. So, I don't know. Um, all female mammals have clitorises. And uh, the interesting thing that I learned about the positioning of the clitoris in cetaceans is it is also internal. It's in that genital slit, uh, which is called the vent, but it is placed very, very close to the entrance of their vent. So, you know, a little bit more easier to find. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It uh, is basically impossible for the male not to touch it when the penis goes into the vagina. So, good job, whales. I'm happy for you. Yeah. They are happy, too. <laughs> they, I hope so. I mean, they deserve it. Um, so, if you want to learn more about cetacean vaginas, and in particular, like, the fact that they're really long, really, really long, not just because cetaceans themselves are usually quite long, um, but a little bit, like, just oddly long and there's lots and lots and lots of like they're called folds and funnels and twists and turns in a station's vagina one of the articles i was reading is like the researcher said i have no idea how a cetacean ever gets pregnant because (laughs) there are so many turns and folds that the male sperm has to get through in order to actually get to the uterus that it's just bananas and um, one of Dara Orbach's articles is actually sort of like hypothesizing why there are so many folds in the vagina because those don't exist in most other mammal vaginas. In fact, the only other mammal, interesting fact, that's what we're all about here, <laughs> um, that has these folds in their vaginas is the hippopotamus, which also happens to be the closest living land mammal relative of cetaceans. Yeah. Would it have anything to do with being in water like that's what i was thinking old thought sperm having to swim and well so water whether it's salt water or fresh water kills sperm so the old thought was that all of the folds could just help make sure that the sperm doesn't like get washed out and doesn't die before it hits the uterus Um, but there apparently that would suggest that then cetaceans with shorter vaginas overall should mm. have more folds, and that doesn't actually track based on uh, uh. Dara Orbach's research. So I'm just going to you know leave that as a little tease for everybody, and you should go read everything that she's ever written. I am just <laughs> such a fan of her now. Dara, if you're listening, please come on our show. I'd love to talk to you, and I'm sure Lindsay and Sarah would too. <laughs> Definitely. I have yeah. many questions now. <laughs> yeah. So much, much reading to do. Um, (laughs) So let's get into now how cetaceans actually mate. Um, It's a little bit complicated because they are in the water and they do mate while they're swimming. And they kind of do it like belly-ish to belly-ish. It's usually pretty fast, like one or two minutes. So they're not doing it for too long. Um, And basically the internal genitals come out. Um, males have prehensile penises, which we will have more on later. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and yeah, sort of line everything up in a rapid fashion. Um, it's uh, 
Yeah, it's probably like not that much to see. There's probably lots of splashing on the surface. Actually, I know there's usually lots of splashing on the surface if they're doing it near the surface. Um, and it is worth noting that at least in some species, if not all, I mean, it's not super well studied, um, that cetaceans do mate not just for reproductive purposes, and they don't only include a male-female pairing. So they're same-sex pairings. They um, also have been known to masturbate against um, other surfaces. And, and then like, they just again, have sex. Sex positive yeah. cetaceans, females yeah. and males masturbate. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. masturbates. Everybody has sex with everybody yes. else all the time. So yeah, because they're mating with individuals that they can't reproduce with either of the same sex or at the wrong time of year. Um, so it's pretty clear that there's other reasons other than reproduction, which could include pleasure. It could include other like you know the same reasons that humans have sex, right? There's all kinds of reasons. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's as we noted in their mailbag episode, we can't ask them. Yeah, exactly. Like, like why are why you having you, sex? Why did you do that? Yeah. So we just have to, you know, assume some things. Yeah. As with many things about cetaceans, the answer is probably because they can. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of um, reasons to have sex, if you're in a sitcom, finding a partner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're going to link to a textbook which and a whole chapter on cetacean courtship and mating from uh, this textbook, which if I guess if you really, really are, um, uh, I was going to say titillated, but maybe not. <laughs> I was going to say tickled. <laughs> intrigued? Intrigued. If you're, if you're really intrigued by uh, this kind of stuff, you can uh, read the whole book, maybe. Um, so for incitations, no citations made for life. So if you've ever heard of any of that or any like really old lame, uh, TV show kind of thing, um, citations do not mate for life. A lot of them do migrate for mating. Not all migration is for mating and some don't migrate at all. That's, uh, some species don't migrate and some individuals within species don't migrate. Migration is super complicated. We touched on it, I think in episode two, mm-hmm. um, at least for humpbacks and, but uh, mating is one of the reasons for uh, migration. Um, and some stations have elaborate rituals, um, some that we would know nothing about, because, again, it's really hard to study that kind of thing when it's super far away. The individuals can be far away. That's a lot to do with the songs and stuff. And then you have to, you'd have to stay with one individual for a really long time to find out what goes into finding a mate. Um, but when it comes to mating, there are four different ty- types of competition to uh, get a mate and successful. So there's contest, female choice, sperm competition, and scramble competition, which sounds interesting. Nick, do you have any um, little bit more explanation on some of those? Sure. So contest competition is what I think most of us think about when we think about competition for mates. Uh, it's, you know, your big pronged ant. I was going to say anteaters. I don't think anteaters are pronged. It's um, it's your big pronged antelopes, like locking antlers with each other. Um, it's head-butting bulls. And in the cetacean world, uh, you know, bottlenose dolphins can get vicious with each other when it comes to mating. Um, that's one of many theories for why a number of cetaceans end up with a lot of scars on their bodies. Uh, we don't know in any cetacean species that there is absolute death for mate competitions, but it definitely happens a lot of other marine mammal species like sea lions and walruses. So that's pretty typical when you think about competition. Males 
are usually the ones doing it and they're fighting with each other or putting on other kind of contest displays, um, jumps and splashes and potentially songs. Who knows? The second female choice competition is just that. Uh, It's usually tied to contest competition, but not always, because often the contest competition is so that then the winner, whatever that means, is chosen by the female as the one that will get to mate with her. But sometimes the female doesn't really get a choice in that, and the winner just, you know, hoards the females. Um, So female choice competition specifically is anything that leads to the female of the species ultimately getting to make the choice about who she's going to mate with. Uh, And what is kind of nice, again, sex positive for females in the cetacean world, they've got good clit... Good clit positioning, and also it's easier in a lot of cases for a female cetacean to avoid unwanted copulation because they can just roll away, and it is a lot harder for a male cetacean to position themselves to uh, get into that with a female. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the first two kinds of competition. The third, sperm competition, is how uh, virile, is that how we pronounce that word? Yes. How virile a cetacean sperm actually is. So this would be sort of coded genetically, uh, probably goes into evolutionary success with uh, testes size and also, you know, like force. Um, just to make sure that if there's a bunch of males all mating with a female, and in many cetacean species that does happen, the female's like, yeah, just whoever wants to, because I want to, and that's great. Um, But whatever sperm is actually going to be the most successful. And then scramble competition, which I had never heard of before reading this chapter of this textbook, is when (laughs) males scramble to try and find a mate because their distribution is so broad. really specific yeah and so this is when you see males of a species particularly this would be for like a lot of the larger baleen whales that are mostly solitary animals for most of the time Um, it kind of ties to migration for mating when males make behavioral changes uh, and migration pattern changes to try and actively find mates that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So that's what the scramble means, not whatever else you might think of when you hear the word scramble. So as we said, acrobatic behavior that we see in love incitations can often be associated with males trying to impress females with their youth and vigor. Um, But it's not clear that that's exactly what's happening. And there's lots of other reasons why whales and dolphins and porpoises breach and spy hop and peck slap and do all of those kinds of things. Um, So that might just be one of the reasons. And again, female cetaceans, like females in most animals, are choosy because they need to have strong offspring. That's the whole purpose of mating and reproduction and all that stuff. And in cetaceans especially, it makes a lot of sense because they have ridiculously long pregnancies and ridiculously long nursing intervals, so they need to have a offspring that is genetically worth it that will be genetically strong because they don't get to eat they have to produce all of this intense milk and so that all that sex that they had was great but then they're pregnant for two years so (laughs) and then they nurse for another two years after yeah so they really wanted to be a real real good one yeah 
So we are not in this episode going to share a number of examples of all the different cetacean mating rituals that have been observed by people out there on the water because when I first showed Lindsay and Sarah the show notes for this episode and I had a bunch of them listed, they're like, this is way too long. Which is fair. It would have been. It would have been much, much, much too long. So that means that there's going to be a future Sexy Times episode. One day. One day. We will come back to this. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. That'll be my goal. When I have finished the song, that's when we will do the next Sexy Times episode. Uh, But what we are going to do is share probably one of the most interesting uh, mating rituals, which also ties to the runner up in our Patreon poll for Fun Flipper Facts this week. So we wanted to try and uh, do a two for one in this episode. So we've got the winner as our actual Fun Flipper Fact, but the runner up, because I couldn't decide between the two and I liked them both so much, uh, has to do with harbor porpoises and their unique physiology as well as their unique mating ritual. So this has not been observed in any other cetacean, but the way that harbor porpoises, and uh, we have a story about this that we'll link to afterwards, the way that harbor porpoises seem to mate, at least sometimes, is that the males wait for a female to come to the surface of the water to take a breath, and at that point, and the only time in their lives, the males leap out of the water and try to, quote, hook her with their penis. So when the female just comes, she's just coming up to try and take a breath. All of a sudden, all these males are just jumping all over her to try and like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And she's like, come on. <laughs> uh, but this relates to the harbor porpoise excess of testosterone. Um, and they are known really throughout the entire cetacean world as being just exceptionally virile. Because harbor porpoise testes are the largest compared to body size in the entire cetacean world. A harbor porpoise's testes are uh, up to 6%, usually 4 to 6% of their body weight. So what that means, since a harbor porpoise can weigh up to 50 kilograms, is that the weight of their testicles is 2 kilograms. This is ridiculous. Yeah. That is insane. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, good thing they're internal, because, yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So no wonder they're jumping all over just to try and hook her. Um, So before we get into our actual fun flipper fact, um, some other fun size size statistics, which is harder to say than you expect. Um, Right whale testes are up to two meters in length, and... 78 centimeters in diameter and can weigh up to 525 pounds or 238 kilograms by far the largest of any animal on earth so so big so big at percentage of body weight it's only like 0.2 percent of their body weight because right whales are really large whales um which again is like wait if that's like if a right whale's testes are that big and it's only 0.2 percent of their body going back to the harbor porpoise up to six percent of their body weight. Yeah, it's crazy. Insane, insane. Um, blue whales, not surprisingly, have the largest penis of any organism on the planet, and their penis typically measures eight to ten feet long. 
Um, the largest whale uh, penis on display is about 67 inches long, and it's available for viewing at the Icelandic Phylogical Museum. Oh, do you um, know what species that is? I could not find it, but uh, if you look up pictures yeah, of the Icelandic phyl- <laughs> Phylogical Museum, or yes, if you've been there, then I want to talk to you, because that looks like a place to go. We will have a link for that in the show notes as well. And um, I think everything you need to know about it is in the first picture you see on their website, where you also see the man who runs the museum. And that just tells you just everything. (laughs) Goodness. Um, While we're talking about sizes, might as well talk about vagina sizes as well. So as Nicole mentioned, it's way less studied. So we're not clear on like the scope of the measurements, but there has been a study looking at a selection of harbor porpoise vaginas that showed that the average length was 21 centimeters and that unlike it with penises, um, the length scaled with the size of the animal. So like a slightly larger harbor porpoise had a slightly longer vagina, which is kind of cool. Yeah, but there's not a great, um, great body of knowledge yet about uh, the size of vaginas in um in cetaceans. No, but that's where my search history really took a turn was when I was trying to search in every way I could think to word it. How big is a whale's vagina? <laughs> Got a lot of San Diego hits, didn't you? I did. I did. Uh, moving back to science. Yay! Um, so now we're going to go into our fun flipper fact that before Nicole sings her, her second favorite song, <laughs> um, I just wanted to give a shout out to our patrons who did vote on this one. Uh, we do have a great Patreon community to help support uh, our podcast and our website in total. It um, It's only a dollar a month and that you can help support us, do what we do. Um, you get a weekly newsletter with facts and stories and news. You get an awesome discount on our merch and you get to vote in these polls. So you get to say whether or not we're, our next fun pulper fact is going to be just about vaginas. <laughs> it, it won't be we've got some plans but you never know what kind of poll we're gonna come up with later so join us won't you <laughs> yeah if you head to patreon.com slash whale sales you can check it out there it's time for fun flipper facts fun flipper facts fun flipper facts oh yeah oh yeah so thank you again patreon subscribers uh for everything that you do including letting me talk about hybridization amongst cetaceans <laughs> So that was the winner of this month's poll. We are talking about the odd hybrid results of some cetacean mating. So again, with our sex positive cetaceans, not only do males sometimes mate with males and also males and females mate and sometimes females mate with females and also everybody sometimes just mates with themselves. It turns out that in many, in fact, 20% of species of cetaceans, they also mate with other species. <gasps> so they are just, I think, probably the most just like overtly open sexual creatures on Earth, maybe? I don't know that for sure. But they're, they just don't have any holdups. And that's great for them. So hybridization in the wild does require three things in order to happen. Um, There have to be heterospecific mates that are genetically and physiologically compatible. So there has to be a male and a female 
of two different species, one from one species, one from the other, that can physiologically have sex with each other. That's so not a blue one. whale and a harbor porpoise. Um, because correct. Because a blue whale penis is larger than a harbor porpoise. Correct. <laughs> yes, it does require a physiological compatibility. That's step one. Then also the two species at the same time have to be behaviorally ready to mate. So some cetaceans do actually have quite strong mating cycles and they just, especially whether it doesn't matter whether it's males or females, they just don't care about mating when they're not in that cycle. So those have to link up. And uh, probably most importantly, I would guess, they also have to be in the same place. So they have to have overlapping distributions. So our friend, Carla Crossman, actually did a whole study that you can find the entire, oh, I love when this happens. You can find the entire study for free online, and we'll link to that in the show notes, uh, where she kind of cataloged everything that we know about hybridization in cetaceans at this point. This article was just published a couple of years ago, um, and it sheds light not just on sort of what cetaceans have mated with other species of cetaceans, but also like what makes cetaceans compatible with each other and why might they be more predisposed to have sex with other species. It's a really, really great article. Um, and I didn't even know that she had published that. So that was really cool. But what I wanted to talk about for fun flipper fact, because I think it is most interesting, is some of the most strange instances of hybridization that exist. So the first hybrid cetacean that was ever uh, acknowledged by science was a fin whale and dolphin. Sorry, a fin- I was going to say fin whale and dolphin. Not correct. <laughs> Not correct, you freaky little dolphins. <laughs> um, but a fin whale and a blue whale. So that was the first ever hybrid. And there have been many examples of fin whale and blue whale hybrids out there. And it seems to have gone both ways. So male, blue whale, female, fin whale, and vice versa, which is not always the case. But the second example ever documented by science happened in 1994, right here in our backyard. In the southern Gulf Islands, we have two species of porpoise, harbor porpoises, which are gray and don't do a lot other than have sex, apparently. Although our friend of the show, Marcus, will tell you differently. (laughs) Um, And dolls porpoises, which look like baby killer whales and seem to be much more active. So they're black and white, uh, much more distinctly colored, and also much more active in the water. So they had been reports of porpoises that looked like harbor porpoises but were behaving like dolls porpoises so bow riding off the side of ships and surfacing really quickly and just generally being a little bit more interesting to watch at the surface of the water sorry marcus (laughs) and uh, when a stranded pregnant dolls porpoise washed ashore dead genetic analysis found that the fetus had been fathered by a harbor porpoise and this was the first example of a second species of hybridization. Um, And we have since then seen tons of examples of this happening between harbor porpoises and dolls porpoises here along our coast. But unlike with the fin whale and the blue whale, this is always a male harbor porpoise and a female dolls porpoise, probably because of the aforementioned testes. Apparently the harbor porpoise females are just like, just go see those other ones. Uh, One study I read actually estimates that hybridization makes up 
up to 2% of the total doll's porpoise population in the southern oh my goodness. which is crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And the hybrids do seem to be viable. Uh, it's a lot harder to tell that with male offspring, uh, male hybrid offspring than female hybrid offspring because we aren't going out and doing paternity tests of every porpoise out there. But there have been many examples of clearly hybrid females who have calves of their own. So that does suggest that they are viable, at least for one generation. All of this research on hybrids and cetaceans is really changing our perspective on what makes the definition of a species. Because it turns out that potentially many of these species of hybrids, including the wolfin, where you frequently, both in human care and out in the ocean, see dolphins of a, a number of different, usually it's either a striped, or spotted, or a bottlenose dolphin mating with a false killer whale uh, or a pilot whale. So those are called wolfins because even though pilot whales and false killer whales are dolphins, they're called whales, and so we call them wolfins. But I do like the name Wolfen, so in that case, it's okay. <laughs> um, there's examples of those hybrids also being viable. And then, although we don't know the viability of this, probably my favorite kind of like couple name of the hybrid species is the Narluga, which was a narwhal and beluga hybrid, which was crazy cool. And they actually have the skull um, from, that from that particular offspring, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well, because it had the tusk of a narwhal, but also some of the internal teeth that a beluga whale has, because narwhals, as we discussed in those episodes, don't actually have other teeth in their mouths. So it was super cool. There you go. Hybrids are really crazy. They're much more common than we think, at least in the cetacean world, and that's just what we know about. There's probably so much that we don't know, and just that element of cetacean research is completely shaking up our entire biological definition of what makes a species a species. So yeah. hybrids are awesome. Next up is our favorite part, well, my favorite part of the <laughs> podcast, where we tell a whale tale on the Whale Tales podcast. Yay! <laughs> Yay! So um, this episode's whale tale comes from Nicole, um, and it's about one of our local um, killer whales. And it's from several summers ago. She'll tell you all the details. And it relates to today's topic also. So uh, take it away, Nicole. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah was also with me for this story. Um, but uh, but I Nicole has a better memory than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in particular, why I think I have a better memory of this particular story is because not only was Sarah with me, but so was my very young and impressionable niece who though not blood related to me is uh family regardless because we get to choose our own family and my niece kelly was with me for this story and it happened in 2014 and she's graduating high school this year ah! so she was whatever age you are six years ago when you graduated high school she was like 11 or 12 is that right yeah is that how math yeah that sounds right 12 probably yeah so she was very young and uh Spoiler alert, while with me, without her parents, while she was traveling out to Vancouver to visit me as a 12-year-old all the way from Manitoba, uh, I showed her a whale penis. Well, you didn't show her a whale penis. It's true, but that is what her mom <laughs> said. Me, like... 
Um, yeah, so I took Kelly and Sarah was with us out on a whale watch tour. We were actually just traveling over to Victoria on one of the many ferries that, um, do sort of, they're not like the big, uh, passenger and vehicle ferry traffic. There's other sort of like just more tourism, tourism ferries that'll take you from Vancouver to Victoria with a whale watch included. And so we were traveling over to Victoria on one of those vessels and J-Pod was around and they were just right out in the Strait of Georgia, which is always super fun to see. And they were swimming and porpoising and just generally having a really active time out in the Strait. And that was awesome. And I was super excited for my niece from the prairies to get to see these animals that had brought me out here. And then we noticed that Onyx, uh, whose designation number is L87. So he's a member of LPOD who was kind of adopted as an honorary member of JPOD. You can learn much more about his story uh, from many of the other stories we have in our library at whale-tales.org. But in this particular story, he was really interested in his um, adopted family in a way that we usually wouldn't necessarily see from an adopted son or brother or uncle or nephew. But I guess the best part for Onyx in his situation is that he's not necessarily closely, at least not as closely related to the other members of J-Pod as the male members of J-Pod. And so when he gets excited, he can take advantage of that with his adopted family. So he was so active slapping, porpoising, breaching. He came up to one particular female member of J-Pod and her young-ish calf, so not a new calf. She probably, she might have still been nursing the calf, but might have also weaned earlier that year. Um, And Sarah and Kelly and I got to watch sort of an impromptu courtship between Onyx and this female. I never got a good enough look at, they were pretty far away, so I didn't get a good enough look at her to, to tell who she was specifically. Um, but uh, eventually, after rubbing his pecs all over her, like all over the front of her body, um, little Onyx came out, who was not so little and very, very bright pink, with a nice little curl at the end, and uh, Onyx was just waving his penis around in the air, sometimes rubbing it up against the back of the female, and sometimes just by himself, as you'll see in one of the pictures in the link for the story, just, look at what I got! (laughs) It's just out here for everybody to see, including Nicole's 12-year-old niece. To her credit, though, (laughs) Kelly was totally cool with the whole thing. Yeah. So it made for a really special day and a great story for her to go back to her class <laughs> in Winnipeg <laughs> and tell. Very educational. Yes. I like it. This is how whales meet, and that's what it looks like. Oh, goodness. So, as Nicole mentioned, uh, Onyx is um, a member of the Southern Resident Killer Whales, which we have many, many stories about. You can check out the category for Southern Resident Killer Whales. Under dolphins on our left-hand menu, because we are scientists. Um, and you can also search his tag as well, Onyx or L87. We have 21 stories featuring Onyx. You can also search the mating for mating under a tag behavior. Uh, we have we tag all of our behaviors, so if you want to read stories about breaching or hunting or mating or whatever, you can read those. We do have um, a fair amount of mating stories, including other ones with some super fun whale penis photos, mm-hmm. as well as the aforementioned harbor porpoise story, which was um, 
posted not too long ago, which with some incredible photos, if you ever wanted to see the high action male harbor porpoise breaching, there are some really good photos in this, that story. So I highly recommend it. And we will be putting it in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, lots and lots of great stories over there about sex and you know, normal other whale things. <laughs> and not sex. So yeah, sex whatever and not you're sex. interested. <laughs> yep. Which brings us to the uh, call to action section of our show. Talking, We've been talking a lot about cetacean sex. We wanted to give you some tips on how to take your own sex life and make it as sustainable as possible. Because we don't usually think about that when it comes to our sex lives, or at least I certainly don't. Um, but it is actually a really good place to start making some sustainable choices. Uh, an estimated 9 billion condoms are sold around the world every single year. Um, so that is a lot of condoms and they are one use, one time use, all those condoms out there. Um, please don't try and reuse a condom. That's gross. Nope. And also that's not, not going to do its job anymore. <laughs> um, so thinking about the waste of those condoms is really important. Now the most important message of our podcast today is going to be that if you need to use a condom, please still do that. Don't yes. let the thought of the waste <laughs> of the condom keep you from using one. Be safe and mm -hmm. uh, use a condom. Because yeah. one of the best single use plastics yes. still out there. Today. Absolutely. Hands down. Because the waste that comes from the condom is completely insignificant as compared to the waste that one human who was not planned for will create in their life. Yeah. Yes. Not to mention protecting yourself from diseases. Really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. So still use condoms. However, think about what your condoms are made of and where they're coming from. Uh, I had never really thought about this very much. And so as I was researching for this, I found two companies very quickly in like my first one minute search that were really working way harder than I expected to find to make sustainable condoms uh, that don't release carcinogens in their process because latex condoms uh, in the process of turning the rubber from a liquid into a solid does release a carcinogenic uh, gas. So there's companies that are trying to figure out how to keep that from happening that are only getting the rubber for those latex products from sustainable fair trade rubber plantations. And the one company, the Sustain Condoms company, is not only just doing all of that from like a sustainability practice, but also is making sure that those condoms are being made in countries where child labor is banned and workers are paid reasonable wages. So way to go. Ooh. And then the other <laughs> company I found, Glide, which also great name, is creating <laughs> yep. ethical, vegan, and fair trade condoms, plus all of their packaging. The Glide's packaging is made with recycled materials and soy and vegetable inks. So use condoms, message number one, if you need to use condoms in your sexual activities, but think about where they're coming from. And remember that the packaging, not the condom itself, but the packaging is usually made of the same kind of soft plastic and foil that is in chip bags. And at least as we've talked about before, can be recycled in your soft plastic. So another topic that can be more sustainable is lube. So um, probably the easiest one to uh, green up is to just avoid anything that's petroleum based because um, petroleum extraction, oil spills, water waste, greenhouse gases, all that kind of stuff. Um, and also might not be the best thing for your body. I mean, do your own research and make your own decisions with 
yourself and your healthcare provider and your sexual partner. Um, but there are lots of other options, water-based lubes, natural lubes like aloe or even coconut oil. Um, but don't use coconut oil with latex condoms because they oil and latex um, don't mix well together. Um, but yeah, so that's a that's an easy thing to look into. Um, and by doing something more green, you might even do something that's better for your body. Um, and you can also look into the packaging of your lube. So finding packaging that is compostable or reusable or easily recyclable rather than um, things that are harder to dispose of. Yeah. And something else, if you're thinking about using any uh, toys or dildos in your sexual experience, it would be to look into non-plastic ones so biodegradable glass wooden all of those things are not plastic so they're much more eco-friendly we will have some links in our show notes um if you're interested in looking into some of those because why not be a little bit more eco-friendly when you're getting it on uh as always we will have the what you can do page link in our show notes um you can also find it on our website under tales of saving wells i just updated it and now i'm going to update it again for some uh sex positive um links as well and it's just a really great list of small things you can do every day to help cetaceans and marine life and the planet you can also find all of our information on our website whale-tales.org including our merch our patreon with all of its perks including getting to vote on again whatever you want us to talk about Uh, our podcast subscription is on our website you can figure out how to get in touch with us and send us any questions that you have about today's episode or any of the episodes you've listened to and most importantly why we started it you'll find over 750 whale dolphin and porpoise stories on our site you can also head to our site to share your stories remember it's not a big deal it's not scary and you don't have to be an expert if you've seen a cessation in the wild we would love to hear about it and we would love to add your story to our library so click the share link on our site contact us on social media at whaletales.org or email us a voice memo and tell us about your incredible cetacean encounter that's whale-tales.org tales like the stories not tales like the animal thank you again for listening and for supporting us we will be back on the last wednesday of next month with more fun facts stories and super nerdy trivia thanks everybody and have a really great day